During my time working for a large, large agricultural company, I was probably involved in the hiring of maybe around 25 or 30 people. And most of those we hired were not for the team that I managed. I was simply part of an interview team used to fill various openings we had. And our interview team usually consisted of three managers. And all three managers had to agree that the person interviewed was a good fit for our company. If even just one of those managers didn't approve of a candidate, they weren't given an offer. Now considering we typic a typical panel interview interviewed three to five individuals for each position, we did a lot of interviewing, and we became pretty competent in conducting interviews. And actually, after a while, I felt that I could tell within the first five minutes if a candidate was going to be worth our interest. Now, that didn't mean that after five minutes he automatically got my vote for the job or she got my vote for the job, but I could quickly determine who was not a good fit. And I'm happy to say most of the time we got it right. We hired the right person for the job. But there were those times, those exceptions, when we didn't hire the right person. And Molly was one exception that really stood out. On, on paper, Molly was perfect. She had a degree in agriculture. She grew up on a farm. She got good grades. And even though she was young, she had some good work experience. At the time we interviewed Molly, we had two openings in two different departments. One opening was in my group, and another was in a manager named Dave's group. And the truth is, is if Molly was impressive on paper, she was even more amazing in person. She quickly established a good rapport with us. She was articulate. She was friendly. She answered all of our questions with ease. Molly was one smart, friendly hard-working farm girls. When the interview ended, there was only one question to be answered. Who would get to hire Molly? Would it be Dave or me? And I have to tell you, I fought really hard for Molly, and this time I won because my team needed someone with a strong agricultural background. And Dave's team was well-stocked with farming folk. And so I got Molly. And I have to tell you, I thought I had won the prize. I imagined Molly making my good team even stronger. Perhaps we would be the very best team in our center. Unfortunately, I hired a disaster. <laughs> Molly was the worst mishire of my entire career. What we saw in the interview was what not, not what we got in person. Molly was fine when the managers were around, but when we were at a meeting or out of the office, Molly was the farm girl from hell. She used vile language, language that would make a sailor blush. She was rude. She was inconsiderate of her coworkers. She had this arrogant, I'm smarter than you attitude. She didn't respect me, and she didn't respect any of the managers. She questioned everything because she believed that she knew better than all the rest of us. And she knew agriculture, but she didn't know how to interact with people in a business setting. She really was a disaster. Her coworkers complained about her. The sales team she supported complained. 
Molly threatened to destroy the team chemistry I had been building. What had been a cohesive unit was starting to fall apart. And within three months of hiring Molly, we started having some tough conversations. Wasn't much later that I began coaching her out. That's kind of what we did at our center. We typically just didn't fire a person. Instead, we tried to help that person see that the job wasn't a good fit for them and it wasn't a good fit, they weren't a good fit for us. The idea was they would hopefully find another job and not be out of work. Well, after six painful months, Molly left her office. She was glad to leave, and we were thrilled to see her walk out the door the last time. Now, the fact is, is when we hired Molly, we didn't know Molly. We saw what she projected. We missed what was in her heart. See, judging a person's character, judging what is in a person's heart can be challenging. It takes time. You really have to get to know them, and even then, we can make mistakes. Now, contrast that with Jesus. Jesus knew the heart of men and women. He knew their heart because Jesus is God. Our passage for this evening's Ash Wednesday service is a short one. It comes from John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. If you were here last Sunday, Pastor David shared Jesus' cleansing of the temple. David talked about how Jesus kicked out the money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice because they were doing it within the temple courts. Jesus made the statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And that got the Jews worked up. And the disciples would later understand that Jesus was talking of himself as the temple and that he would be killed and that he would rise from the dead three days later. And so that brings us to where we are, John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. John wrote this. He said, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, what was happening there in that passage is that the people were seeing Jesus perform signs. He was performing miracles. And John doesn't tell us what all the miracles were, but it's clear that Jesus was attracting attention. People always rush to see something amazing. We, we like a show, not that Jesus was putting on a show. But as a result of their witnessing Jesus' miracles, John says many believed in Jesus' name. Now, Jesus' response, though, to their belief might seem somewhat shocking. John wrote, he said, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. And our question might be, well, why? Think about it. Jesus performed a miracle. People saw it. They were impressed. They believed in Jesus. I mean, it all sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? So why wouldn't Jesus open himself? Why wouldn't Jesus entrust himself to them? Well, John also provides the answer. Jesus knew all people. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about men because Jesus knew what was in man, in men and women. See, these people believed something about Jesus. They might have believed that Jesus was a miracle worker. Maybe they wondered if he was some type of God. More importantly, though, Jesus did not believe in the people's belief. Jesus didn't commit himself to them because Jesus 
knew their heart. What showed on the outside was not true of their inner self. The people didn't believe, they didn't trust that Jesus was the Son of God. And that just reminds us that that God's knowledge about us is different from our knowledge about each other, or even our knowledge about ourselves. 1 Samuel 16.7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Romans 8.27 speaks of God searching our heart. God knows the depth of our inmost being. And knowing that leads to at least three questions we could ask. First question is, what does Jesus really know about us? The second is, what we, what we must admit about ourselves. And then the third is, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do, even though he knew what was in men and women? Let's start with the first question. What does Jesus know about us? Now, before we answer that question, keep in mind that sometimes we will ask a question and we're not going to like the answer. And this is one of those times. Let me give you an example how this might work. There was a, a young couple. They'd been dating a few months. Everything was going well. They became a Facebook official couple. It wasn't long before their couple announcement, though, that the guy started to notice that the girl was pulling away a little bit. And a week later, he was shocked to see that she was no longer in a Facebook relationship with him. Everybody knew it before he did. Finally, she texted him the bad news. It was over. Now, most guys would want to know why. Why'd she break up with him? Most guys also may not want to hear the answer that they hear. Could be that the girl broke up with him because she found another guy more attractive. Or she discovered that he was self-centered. He didn't treat her with respect. He was argumentative. He could have simply been boring. He didn't ignite any passion in her heart, so she dropped him. All of those could be true, but none of them would be good to hear, make you feel good if you were that guy. So let me ask you, are you ready to hear what Jesus knows about us? Well, here it is. Jesus knows the deceit in our heart. He knows our total depravity. Wayne Grudem defines total depravity this way. He says it's our inability to do good before God. It's our inability to do good before God. Paul wrote in Romans 7, 18, he said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. Now that's not to say that you and I can't do good things. We can. But in our flesh, in our own strength, we can't do anything that will please God. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And there are other verses that make our depravity and deceitful heart very clear. Romans 1.21 states, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. In Romans 3, verses 11 through 18, the Apostle Paul really lays it out in painful honesty. 
He said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, that's what the Bible says about us. How'd that make you feel? You know, the fact is, we could try and argue that these passages aren't true, but it's an argument we're not going to win. Think about the, some of the sins of our culture. Pornography is rampant, even among Christians. Sex is big t- business. All you have to do is turn on your TV or look at a movie. We've distorted God's gift of sex. Cult- culture says there's no such thing as sexual immorality as long as it makes you feel good. We've killed over 60 million babies in legalized abortion. On average, we kill a million babies a year in the U.S. That's pure evil. We don't accept the truth that God created us, male or female. We don't care for creation as God says we should. And that's the sins of the culture. And we could say, well, I'm, I don't do any of that. But then there are our own personal sins. Here are just a few. We're filled with pride. We want to put other people down to make us feel better. You know, we're Christians. We're better. We want more and more and more. We're never satisfied. We speak hurtful words, and yet we're easily offended by what other people say. Our thoughts are evil. And we think we can hide our thoughts. We can hide them from other people, but we can't hide them from God. We justify our pleasure-seeking addictions. And we put so many things ahead of God, our careers, our hobbies, our love of sports, our possessions. We're selfish with our time, our talents, and our money. We're me first. We're devoted to our idols. God is not our priority. The Apostle Paul, who we look up to, called himself a wretched man. And that's all of us. Jesus knew what was in a man. He knows us. Okay, so that's bad news. It leads to the next question. What must we admit about ourselves? And the answer to this question is no easier than the first. It's the season of Lent, and Lent is a time for confession and self-examination. It's a time where we admit who we really are, and so what we admit to ourselves, the first thing we must admit is we are guilty. We're sinners. We're guilty before God. And the thing is, I think every one of us would agree with that. And yet every one of us, myself included, deep down we want to believe that we're basically good people. And that can be a trap. It can be a trap that keeps us from falling on our knees, begging God for forgiveness. Our confessing our sins to God is often watered down because we really don't think we've got that much to confess. The truth is, None of us are basically good people. We deserve eternal punishment in hell. 
The prophet Isaiah, a man of God, saw the glory of God with the angels singing. The angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah responded as every one of us should. He said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. We also have to admit that we can't fix our sin problem. Our salvation depends 100% on God's grace. Period. It's kind of like this seesaw. I borrowed it from Lift Kids Preschool. I've got a couple volunteers, Elise Miller and Colton. Colton's dad or, my mom, or dad or mom might come up with them. I'm going to put it up here so you guys can see. Got it, Colton? We're going to let... Mommy, you want to hold that for him? Colton gets to be God. Sorry, Elise, you get to be us. And I'm just going to kind of instruct you guys what to do here. Okay? See, on one side of our seesaw there is our view of God, how we look at God, and the other is our view of how we see ourselves. When one side is up, the other side's down just a little bit, and vice versa. A lot of us try to balance that seesaw just perfectly between the two. But that doesn't work. Usually, one side is going to go up or the other side is going to go down. If we hold ourselves in high regard, us, up, when we do that, we end up minimizing our view of God. And when we do that, we believe that we can fix our sin problem. We can overcome our total depravity. We can do it in our strength, our own strength. And of course, that doesn't work. It's impossible. On the other hand, if we hold God in high regard, very good, we exalt God. And this is the only proper approach to life. Only a humble heart can exalt God as he deserves. When we exalt God and humble ourselves, we're able to come to us. We can win. I want you to think about strength. If we rely on God to help us, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, if we rely on God to help us, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, Joseph, if we rely on God to help us, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, Joseph in the old eye on God to help us, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, Joseph in the Old Testament, God to help us, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, Joseph in the Old Testament, to help us, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, Joseph in the Old Testament, we can win. I want you to think about, remember, Joseph in the Old Testament, remember, I want you to think about, remember Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember what happened. I want you to think about, remember Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember what happened with Potiphar. I want you to think about, remember Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember what happened with Potiphar's wife. If you don't remember, Potiphar's wife liked Joseph. I mean, she really liked him. And she wanted him. She wanted him really bad. And it would have been easy for Joseph to give in. No one ever had to know. He could have had a fun little fling with the boss's wife. But what did Joseph do? 
Joseph ran. He got away from the temptation. He didn't look back. God was, jo- God was with Joseph. And that's just a lesson to us. If a certain situation tempts you, we'll just get out of that situation. Putting ourselves in tempting situations is asking for trouble. The solution is instead to turn our eyes to Jesus. I've discovered that when I'm focused on Jesus, I'm a whole lot less likely to sin. And I would guess that's the same for all of us. Brings us to our last question of the evening, and it's this. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do, even though Jesus knew what was inside each of us? Well, he could have abandoned us, right? We deserved it. God could have been just in letting each one of us die in our sins. God had no obligation to bail us out. But that's not how God works. God loves us. And so what did Jesus do? Well, the first thing he actually did was speak truth. It kind of came back to the hard lesson we've been talking about. In John 8, 44, Jesus said to the Jews, he said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. A few verses earlier, Jesus had said, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Not facing the truth doesn't take it away. And so Jesus calls us to face the truth. In, in 2005, Larry King interviewed an extremely popular TV evangelist whose first name begins with the letter J. We're not going to go his whole name. We're just going to call him J. You might have heard of him. He likes to smile. Did I give it away? <laughs> Larry asked J if he ever told people about their sin. And Jay replied, no, I don't. I don't have it in my heart to condemn people. I'm there to encourage them. I see myself more as a coach, as a motivator, to help them experience the life that God has given for all of us. And Jay ended up by saying, people want to hear a positive message. And he's right. We do. Never talking about sin might make you money on TV. We can motivate people. We can coach them. We can make them feel good and lead them straight to hell. But Jesus shared the reality of our situation. And the fact is he did so much more than that. Even though he knows our heart, Jesus offered the solution, the only solution to our problem. So what did Jesus do? He went to the cross. He died a horrible death to save us, to offer us forgiveness. That's the reason to rejoice. When we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he's one with God, we put our trust in him. He came to live as one of us, a human. He lived a perfectly obedient, a sinless life. And then he went to the cross voluntarily to pay the penalty of death that all our sins deserve. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven. And Jesus rose again from the dead. And we too one day will rise. As Christians, you and I are still sinners. But we've been adopted into God's family. That is amazing, wonderful news to rejoice with because when God looks at you, when he looks at me, he doesn't see our sin. God sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus, covering us. 
And that is the beauty of Easter. Easter is the greatest celebration. But to celebrate Easter, I believe you need to experience Lent. In other words, to be forgiven, to be adopted into God's family, we have to realize how badly we need forgiveness. Jesus knows what is in a man. And at our core, it's not good. And even so, Jesus came to save us. And that's great. I would say over the next 40 days, make an effort to spend more time in prayer. And as you do that, mourn the sin of our world. Come clean about your own sins. Confess them to God. Admit to God that you can't beat sin on your own. Repent. And remember, without Jesus, we're all doomed. And over those next 40 days, also remember that Jesus died and rose again for you and for me. And look forward to the greatest celebration we can ever have. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you at the beginning of this season of Lent. Honestly, it's a, it's a season that we'd probably just, soon, just as soon ignore. Because God, it's so hard for us to come clean. It's so hard for us to, to really admit to you, to admit to ourselves the, the things that we've done wrong, the bad attitudes we've had, the thoughts we've had. But Father, it's also freeing. We know that when we confess our sins to you, that you will forgive us. That when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we have life, an abundant life today. But the promise also of eternal life in heaven. And so Father, we ask you just to be with us as we travel through these next 40 days. May it be a time where we remember, where we confess, where we fast, where we repent. May it be a time where we look forward with anticipation to the celebration of remembering Jesus' resurrection. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your Son. We thank you that you love us even though we don't deserve it. We thank you that you walk with us every day. We thank you that even though we face tough times, you never leave our side. And we thank you that one day you will call us home. We will live in paradise. There won't be any more mourning or tears or pain. We will live for eternity in pure joy. Amen. If you're able, please stand as we sing our closing hymn.